This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world slash donate, or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hey, For the Wild community, it's Ayana here. We are so grateful to all of the amazing members of our community who contribute to bringing this podcast to life each week including all of our generous supporters over on Patreon. To keep For the Wild freely accessible to all, long-term we're exploring how we can fund the podcast without resigning ourselves to overly commercializing our airtime in order to sustain production. To continue to bring listeners weekly content like this, we're extending an invitation to anyone who is able to stand with us in this work. We're dreaming into a goal of raising $5,000 per month over on Patreon. If you value this podcast and the great visionaries who have been featured on this platform, we invite you to join us on Patreon. We're so grateful for the generous sponsorships we've received, but we cannot produce the podcast on their generosity alone. We need listener support to stay running and commercial free. Join us at patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Jenny O'Dell. It can be easy to forget the importance of those small moments of joy where you sort of remember like what it is that you're fighting for in the first place. And I think there's a real risk of losing that and sort of just living in this grind of despair. Jenny O'Dell is a writer, artist, and enthusiastic bird watcher based in Oakland, California. She is the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Odell teaches digital art at Stanford University and has been an artist in residence at the San Francisco Planning Department, the Internet Archive, and Recology SF, otherwise known as The Dump. Oh, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us today. I am really looking forward to this conversation. I think we need to be having what we're about to have with so many people. And um, yeah, it's just so relevant. And I'm sure you hear that a lot. So I just appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So the attention economy refers to our attention as currency and its existence predates social media and technology. But I think previously we were able to enter and exit this economy with more freedom, whereas now through the ubiquity of social media, 
we remain passively trapped. So to acclimate listeners to our conversation, how do you describe the attention economy and what meaning does it take on in context to the age of technology? Yeah, so I think that my definition would probably be pretty similar to what you just mentioned. It's it's an economy in which the currency is your attention. I think that can be measured in different ways, like you know, engagement, amount of time spent on a platform, but basically attention is the currency. And as you also mentioned, it predates, you know, the era of social media. As long as we've had advertising, we've had the attention economy. Um, and I think advertising is still a really important example to look at in terms of something that a group of people spent a lot of time on designing something that was meant to capture and hold your attention and ultimately direct your actions as well to buy something. And so that's, you know, that's something that's been around for a long time. And then of course, now it's just um, much more sophisticated. I would say it's more granular. It's kind of embedded more thoroughly, I think, in a lot of our lives, you know, through social media, but also through the fact that you have like a computer in your pocket at all times now. And also that it's occurring on platforms that you use to keep in touch with your friends um, or to get information. Um, And so it's really quite difficult to get away from. And I think that that's something that I was really (laughs) struggling through, you know, in the book. Like I I think, you know, hopefully it comes across that it's, it's, it was sort of an open question for me, like, what does this struggle look like? And what is, you know, what is a way of interacting and being in the world without completely succumbing to the attention economy all the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the computer in our pocket is so real for so many of us. And in How to Do Nothing, you write, quote, We know that we live in complex times that demand complex thoughts and conversations, and those in turn demand the very time and space that is nowhere to be found. The convenience of limitless connectivity has neatly paved over the nuances of in-person conversation, cutting away so much information and context in the process, end quote. And I wonder, what exactly is it that makes this so? In part, I think about how when one communicates on social platforms, to some extent, it's always for an audience. Even when one person is speaking to someone or commenting on someone's post, it's with the knowledge that it is for everyone else to see as well. And and so I think with this loss of privacy, we reduce our own complexity or replace vulnerability with defensiveness. So do you think social media is inherently incompatible with complexity? You know, I would like to think that it's not necessarily, I think as I think commercial social media is, and, you know, that's why sort of towards the end of the book, I I sort of (laughs) try to imagine this like utopian social media that it's almost like difficult to imagine, but I'm trying, you know, to imagine a, a social media that just does what we want it to do, which is like connect us to other people, but without the sort of social currency of you know, notifications and likes and all of the metrics of of commercial social media. But as you say, like, I think some of it is maybe just, you know, uh, related to this experience of communicating to a kind of anonymous public, even when you sort of feel like you're communicating with your friends and that maybe like part of the problem with the attention economy is already present in that kind of relationship. So I definitely think that in its current form, something like Twitter or Instagram, if you think of the sheer volume of information that you kind of scroll past when you use either one of those, absolutely is uh, anathema to complexity. I mean, the number, I mean, think about like the number of seconds you even spend on anything. 
And, you know, one thing that I, one point I was trying to make in the book was that the attention economy trades on not just attention, but a really specific form of attention. I think um, a shallow one. So a kind of reactive knee-jerk reaction, you know, the way, the kind of attention that an advertisement would work on, you know, um, almost like habitual. And, and, you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do in the book is to talk about and try to encourage or grow this, these other deeper, slower forms of attention. And it's like this shallow attention both feeds the attention economy, but it also comes out of it. So it's the thing that kind of like draws you into it, but it's also the thing that it teaches you. And so I think there's this danger of entering the spiral where your attention is only ever very shallow and your attention span is very short and the amount of attention that you pay to things is very small. And, and that I think is a big part of the problem with dealing with any kind of complexity, because if you are seeking context, you know, historical context, especially, um, but also just the kind of inherent complexity of any kind of even like a social movement or an idea um, really requires patience. Um, it's something where you're not going to get results in five minutes. You're not going to get results tomorrow. Um, you may be confused for some time. You may need to ask more questions. Um, and all of these things are kind of like the opposite of, of the kind of attention and expectation that I think in its current form, social media definitely encourages. Yeah, and also to bring up that algorithms benefit off us acting at a, in rage or anger and fear. It actually produces value for Facebook, Twitter, etc. And and so I think that plays into that shallowness as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that like you know I was asking myself in late 2016 when I started working on the talk that that became the book, and it's something that I've been asking myself again, <laughs> you know, ever since then, especially this year, which is like you know, really stepping back from something like a reaction, um, the reaction to like need to post about something and just, you know, giving myself a pause and asking like, you know, who is this for? <laughs> um, what is this actually accomplishing? And I, you know, I actually, in the last couple of months, I have been posting a lot less because I don't, I just sort of don't want to add to the noise. Um, and I don't think that it's useful for me to do that. I think I have other ways of contributing that are maybe not as visible, they're not as immediate, and they're not as illegible. They're not as legible as like a sort of action in the moment, but uh, but there's ultimately more meaningful to me. And and they're also not serving the attention economy of these platforms, which is sort of agnostic in terms of content, right? It doesn't matter which side you're on or, or sort of what you're expressing, you know, engagement is engagement um, according to business models. In your work, you point out that congruently, there has been a decline in public spaces that allow us to exist as human beings, not potential consumers. And this observation really leads me to think about content extraction and exploitation. Every time we peer into our phones and venture on social media, I do think some degree of extraction happens, whether you are on the generating or consuming end. So what are the psychological ramifications of us giving ourselves freely to these platforms that are becoming more predatory and commercial? I think probably there's some loss of interiority. I mean, I think it's probably pretty clear from the book that I very highly prize a, a sense of interiority um, and sort of maintaining a space for reflection. Um, and I think that those kinds of things are are very much threatened by this like sort of imperative to constantly um, externalize and to some extent advertise oneself you know like I have an Instagram and it's 
I, I have such a troubled relationship with it because I have not figured out a way to post on it that doesn't feel like an advertisement for myself. And I don't know, maybe someone out there has figured it out, but I, I haven't. I think it's just, um, again, it's like something about the structure of it. And, and that's just such a different relationship, you know, to others and also to oneself than something like, like trying to cultivate these spaces either with oneself or among friends or family or just sort of people who know you in which you can be more fluid. You know, you can experiment with different ideas. You can have dialogue. Um, you don't always have to know that you have the right answer um, in a sort of airtight way. Like you're growing basically, like you're growing and evolving and, and you know, you may be different day to day. And I think this is just like the reality of identity. Um, you know, one thing that I, I talk a lot about in the context of ecology in the book is that I sort of subscribe to an ecological model of the self where the self is not, you know, it's not a bounded entity that is like accumulating value to itself over a lifetime, but rather this kind of intersection among many different influences and flows and circumstances. And that is so different from, you know, the extreme would be like a personal brand. But even if you, you're not really necessarily trying to brand yourself, I think there's, you're, you're tending in that direction, usually if you're using social media a certain way. So um, I think that it just has kind of troubling um, implications for the the ecological growing, learning, changing self that has room and space and sort of lack of fear in terms of experimentation and, and learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like the brand of self, the identity creates these projections and pedestalizing. I don't know if that's quite the word, but it doesn't, I think, allow people to be people, people to be human and dynamic in their humanness. But instead, it's like, oh, well, this is what people expect from me. They think this is what my brand identity is. That's what they're projecting onto. And if I don't follow that model, then I won't be accepted or I won't be liked. And uh, yeah, it's sad because we are such dynamic creatures that need to evolve and shift and change and grow and learn. And yeah, gosh, there's so much to that. And and talking about the extractive nature of the attention economy and social media also leads me to think about surveillance. You mentioned the Nextdoor app, which has largely become a form of surveillance. People report their neighbors, share video footage from their ring home security systems, etc. And we also use social media to surveil people, we know. And similarly, these platforms surveil us. So I'm curious to hear how you think about surveillance as being a part of the attention economy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where it, again, not everyone, but I think for a lot of people's use of social media has become so second nature that you, you can sometimes forget that it is a voluntary decision. It's quite habitual at this point, right? So maybe it doesn't feel voluntary, but um, I think that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you are offering up so much information about yourself anytime, again, you know, you don't even have to be posting, right? Literally the minute you are in the space, like every, everything you do is tracked, right? Like, you know, how much time you spend looking at things, like what you're looking at, what you're engaging with, who you're following, um, where you are. And that's, and that's completely outside of the then very personal information that you're, you know, offering up, you know, in the caption of your post. And I think, again, it's one of those things where if you kind of just step back for even a second 
or, you know, something I really recommend, which is, and I, I'm not alone in recommending this. It's just like, you know, try not doing it for a while. It doesn't have to be that long. Like, I guess it depends on how frequently you use it. Right. But like, let's say you take like a week off or something. And it, and I also strongly believe that, you know, you don't need to make a big post about how you're going to be like taking a hiatus from Instagram. Like you don't owe anyone that, like you don't work for this anonymous audience. You don't need an out of office message for like the world. Um, like you can just decide to not use it for a while. Um, and I think that one of the things that happens when you step back is like these things that started to seem, you know, very, again, sort of like so second nature, they're hard to see, they will come back into focus. And I think you may start to ask questions like, you know, why, why, why am I offering all of this information? Why am I, why am I spending so much time in this space in which I am generating so much data that is so lucrative to these companies? Not to mention like offering up parts of myself to, you know, question mark, right? Like <laughs> complete strangers um, versus like, you know, maybe just sending things to like your friend who is actually the person who you wanted to see that thing. And so I think that it's, I just, you know, whenever I do that, I get really, I'm very troubled by how much this idea of surveillance has, you know, not, it's not that it's disappeared. I think people are aware of it, but if you just even think about the last, you know, like five or 10 years, like, I feel like there's a kind of a prevailing attitude of like, I, I know that it's a thing and I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, and it's just kind of a necessary evil of me using social media. And I don't, I don't think we should accept that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the question too around surveillance and activism and protest. My interview with Lauren Reagan, who's an attorney out of Oregon, you know, she talks about don't be posting pictures of people at protest because you're literally giving information about people who may or may not be consenting to give that to basically Big Brother, the cops, whoever. And so, um, you know, there's that level too of civil disobedience and with things being so recorded at all times and posted at all times. But then also my interview with CM Hamilton, they're saying, you know, no, please do post pictures of us because if we go missing, we want people to find us. There's safety in that type of self-surveillance or community surveillance. And so it's, gosh, like I really hear both sides of the spectrum when it comes to social media surveillance and civil disobedience, protest, activism. And it's something that I think we need to just think more about and come to community consent about and and really strategize about how are we using these platforms? How are we taking power from them or what are we using them for? I mean, there's all these questions that come to mind, but... um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if there's anything you want to say on that, but um, it's such a big topic that could go all different ways. Yeah. I mean, I I very much feel like, you know, I, I wrote the book hoping that it might be helpful to activists among others, but I, you know, I am not, I am not personally an activist. And I say that because I, I know and I know some activists um, much more actually now than before I wrote the book. And I understand um, the sort of work of that and how specific it is. Um, and that it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's work, right? It's a very specific type of work. Um, and so I would just say that that's why so, I so value um, the research of the type um, that I 
cite in the book by Veronica Barassi, who is actually going and interviewing activists about how they use social media and the sort of like pros and cons. Like, you know, obviously it's a way for them to spread information and be connected, but she also talks about the the kind of temporal problems with it, like always needing to kind of stay on top of the stack of content. So it means that you constantly have to be putting things out. It sort of collapses the complexity of conversations that need to happen. Um, and, you know, just these kind of, you know, different aspects of social media that help or hurt someone who is trying to do activism. Um, and so I really, I think that that's a really fruitful kind of area of research and um, something that I've, you know, tried to talk to more activists about their relationship with the, the attention economy and social media, just because it's something that, um, you know, I don't have that direct experience with, but I am really interested in. Now I'd like to discuss the notion of nothing. And the first thing that came to my mind is how over the past couple of years, we've conflated nothingness with mindless actions. You know, if we've spent the last hour scrolling on our phones, we say we've done nothing. Or, you know, if we're just resting, we say we're doing nothing. So I'm wondering, what do you think nothingness means in our culture? And what does the ideal act of doing nothing look like to you? Yeah, I think that generally, I would say we probably think of doing nothing as not having anything to show for your time. And that's, I'm generalizing, like, I don't think everyone feels that way. But I think culturally, right, like we, we very much um, value productivity, um, and, and producing, you know, results. So whether that's work, or kind of measurable self improvement, or you know, something that you can see, right? Like I, I yeah, something to show for your time. So you, if you don't have anything to show for your time, then, then you sort of did nothing. And so, yeah, as you said, like all kinds of things get caught in that, like mindless activity, but also activity that has no goal, rest, caretaking, maintenance, all the things that, things that I would, per, I personally would count as productive, but I think don't, you know, typically fall into that category. And I mean, that's part of the reason I, I mentioned at the very beginning, the, the amount of maintenance work that goes into the Rose Garden, where a lot of the book is kind of set. Um, just the number of hours that I have observed volunteers doing quite a lot, but it, but in the service of maintaining something exactly the same way as it has always been. Um, so it's not like they're you know adding new things in any sort of obvious way. And I don't know, for me, I think the ideal form of doing nothing, um, I think that it's a couple of things. One is, I think it has to be something with no, no obvious goal. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned um, Pauline Oliveros, the musician and sound artist who coined the term deep listening, 
because she talks about this practice of deep listening as being a necessary thing to learn in this culture because we prize judgment and like immediate judgment and analysis versus just kind of open-ended listening where you really don't, you don't assume that you know it's there um, and you're just open and um, receptive to whatever is around you. And I think that that can take on so many different forms for different folks and depending on like, you know, what makes you comfortable, what kind of spaces you feel comfortable in, what you like doing. But, you know, for me, it's bird watching, And I think bird watching is an easy example because you go out, yet, yeah, like, I guess you sort of have the goal of seeing birds, but, um, but it's just like, as a practice, it requires you to just be quiet and observant and ready to be surprised at any moment. It's very, I think it's a very humbling thing to do. And furthermore at the end of that time it's not like I have you know anything to I don't have any quote-unquote results right like I don't have any sort of score to add to anything it's just kind of like this was time that I spent in observation so I think that's you know the lack of goal is is one part of it and then I would say the other part is um something where you kind of lose like those boundaries of the self become a little bit fuzzy so again, to go back to bird watching, like that's just something that I personally experience when I do that is like, I'm not thinking about like Jenny O'Dell, capital J, capital O, you know, like the the person, the author, you know, whatever. When, I, when I'm bird watching, I'm not thinking about myself at all. Um, uh, and yet I think that it's a very intense experience of the self just in relationship to my surroundings. Um, and it's often in those moments that I kind of remember like really obvious things like I'm alive. Um, I will not always be alive. I live on, you know, that I live on the earth and it's also, you know, like, you know, there's the fact of it's being there and I'm here. Like these really like sort of basic fundamental things that I think um, it's actually easy to go a long time without remembering any of those things. Um, so uh, I would say for me, like the, the most, most ideal version of, of doing nothing is something where you can access that feeling as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Losing the self. It's so relieving. Uh, yeah. I've, it's something I try to do every day very often just to get out of my own way to live life. And um, yeah, I think about our generation and the ones after and our bodies have been just incredibly abused by a consumer driven, ego driven society and especially for younger ones who through technology, media, and entertainment have been severed from the sensuous world at such an early age. And not just the impacts to our physical body, but of course our minds are in a very abusive relationship with media as well. So many of us find ourselves in this place where we get anxious from being present, but alternatively, we're also anxious on social media. And so we're caught between these two forms of anxiety but it just so happens that social media is much more addictive. So how does nothingness become a form of rehabilitation and a way to actually practice embodiment as well under this scenario? Yeah, it's funny that you use the word addictive because I I think some of some of what I'm describing in the book is like finding something that that falls under this category of nothing that is that is also addictive, <laughs> but you know, it's just something that's not destroying you. Um, and so like, I, I don't know if I would ever use the word addictive to describe my 
relationship to bird watching, but it, but I do also sometimes describe myself as an involuntary bird watcher, which is, you know, because I, I actually can't help but look for birds all the time. And if I, I mean, you can just ask my boyfriend, like if we're going on a walk and it's getting dark and clearly we should turn around and go back, but there are a lot of birds, like I'm not going to want to go back. Like I'm always like, I, I will stay until the last minute. Um, and so like, I, I think that actually, you know, the word nothing, it sounds very inert, but um, I think the trick is to, to sort of find something like this that exerts a comparable pull on you. And like I said, I think that that is something that that's very different for, for anyone based on, you know, what they're interested in, you know, like basically like finding a, some kind of rabbit hole that, that just sustains you instead of driving you into this like wheel of anxiety. And that sounds difficult, but I, I don't think it actually is. I think, I think we're drawn to things that make us feel good or things that right now make us feel just better. I mean, I'm just thinking personally of times when, you know, I was really sort of caught in this shallow attention for a long time, you know, probably working too hard and just not being kind to myself. And then just, you know, having, and having my attention be very scattered and then just having maybe like a two hour conversation with a friend Um, and the relief that you feel at, you know, during that conversation and afterwards and how different a way of being that is from how you were before. I don't, I, I don't think you soon forget that. Um, and so I think just being attentive to, and, and then seeking out these circumstances in which your attention is absorbed by something else or someone else that can hold it. And maybe it takes a bit of searching to find out what that is. I also think there's, you know, such potential in finding and connecting with others who share those interests. So, you know, like I have gone on a couple of uh, birding field trips with, you know, like the Golden Gate Audubon Society um, and just like being together with a, you know, a small group of people that are all really focused on, you know, this one kind of duck or something that we're all looking for. That's just so, uh, it's very like nourishing experience compared to, you know, what, you know, this platform that is designed to also hold my attention, but doesn't really do anything for me and actually actively saps my energy and, you know, leaves me feeling like depressed and and anxious. Yeah, I don't think you are alone in that. And I think too, with bird watching, looking for ducks, there's something too that it brings our attention to the natural world, to actually what does literally sustain us. Yeah, I think that even the way our eyes adjust to the earth and the colors of the forest or the sky or the soil compared to the light of a screen. And, you know, there, there's just so much to that. And you write how, quote, doing nothing isn't a one-time event where you turn off your phone for 48 hours or permanently rebuke all technology because most of us can't afford these luxuries which I really appreciate you acknowledging. And in lieu of this, you present refusal in place, which suggests that if we are indeed within the attention economy, we must practice how to live well within it. So can you talk a bit about how refusal requires degrees of latitude, as well as what perpetual refusal looks like in practice for you? Yeah, yeah, it was important for me to acknowledge that you know, um, different folks have different margins of refusal, as I think I also call it. 
you know, I, I don't want to make any assumptions about anyone's, you know, need or desire to use social media, you know, for example, like someone who works in media, right? Like a journalist um, has to have, you know, typically has to have an online presence, you know, for all sorts of reasons, or, you know, even just like the, just wanting to, all of your friends are on social media and you need, you know, you, you feel like you need to be there to participate. There are all kinds of reasons that you would not be able to just kind of like, um, as I, as I say, like throw your phone in the ocean and, and, and run away. And so I think that, for me, the kind of refusal in place, it has to do with perspective and trying to gain perspective and, and also making, as I say, and it's not a one-time event, trying to make that into a sort of discipline or a practice. So, you know, just to, to borrow like from a physical example, like, so I live at the bottom of a hill and I have, in the last couple of months, I've developed this uh, routine of every morning I walk to the top of this hill. It doesn't take that long. Um, I walk to the top of this hill and there's an intersection where I, I can, if it's clear, I can see the bay, the San Francisco Bay. Um, and then I can, you know, see San Francisco and the mountains behind it, like if it's clear enough. And and then I just, and I go back and do whatever I was doing. And I, I think I'm doing that to sort of like orient myself spatially, but also there's something that I think we, a lot of us intuitively have experienced, which is like, we, we do that, right? Like we walk to the top of the hill to get, to, to look at, you know, the environment in which we just were from a different angle. And that gives us some kind of feeling of understanding um, that we weren't able to have when we were kind of in the middle of it. And for me personally, like that's an experience that I have sought like over and over again, when I was doing more visual art, a lot of it involved satellite imagery and maps and looking at things from weird angles. Like this is just kind of like a thing that I've been obsessed with for a long time. And I, I think what happened with how to do nothing was that I realized that it went from being an artistic interest to like a survival skill, <laughs> which is like, if you live in the midst of something that you don't, you don't agree with, um, you sort of can't come to terms with is harmful, you know, like the attention economy, there is this kind of relationship in which you, you don't completely exit, but you also don't participate the way that you're supposed to. And you always kind of maintain this weird kind of like a uh, strange perspective on it. Uh, and that may require you to just kind of like mentally even just like ask new questions over time where this thing that should never feel f- familiar will always, should always seem a little bit off, right? Like a little bit alien. Um, it was kind of like what I was saying earlier about stepping away from something for a little bit and then it very quickly starts to seem pretty strange. So just kind of maintaining that as like an active yeah, discipline. And I say discipline because it's something that I think you have to, you have to do continuously over and over again, basically just trying not to fall into a habitual way, way of being. And I, I'm saying that in the context of the attention economy, but I also think that that's just a good thing to do in life, in my experience, is to not fall into habitual ways of thinking and to always kind of be almost like poking yourself <laughs> um, and, and trying to see the thing that you weren't saying um, or see the thing that you're used to from a new angle. And I think this is what, um, for me, has helped me not kind of fall into that groove that social media so um, expertly sets up for me. Mm-hmm. In addition to refusal in place, you chronicle how bioregionalism and reframing our attention is an antidote to the attention economy. You write, quote, The reason I suggest the bioregion as a meeting ground for our attention 
is not simply because it would address species loneliness, or because it enriches the human experience, or even because I believe our physical survival may depend on it. I value bioregionalism for the even more basic reason that just as attention may be the last resource we have to withhold, the physical world is our last common reference point, end quote. And we so desperately need common reference points. So can you elaborate a bit more on why you link your critique of the attention economy to bioregionalism? And does this focus prevent us from replicating consumer conditioning? Yeah, I, I think that for me, bioregionalism is is useful as a model, like a conceptual model, but then it's also, I, I shouldn't use the word useful, um, it's, I guess I would say that it's important to me um, metaphorically and concretely. So metaphorically, as a sort of model, I think if you pay a lot of attention to your bioregion or anything in your bioregion, it forces you to acknowledge complexity and reciprocal relationships. And it also kind of troubles the idea of like a bounded entity. So like, this is a sort of weird example, but just the other day I was walking to the top of the hill um, and I saw all of these birds in a tree, like every bird I've ever seen in this neighborhood was in this one tree and they were all going nuts. And then I realized that they were all eating these moths. And then I looked at the moths and the moths were all like spawning out of the, this spot on the ground. Like hundreds of moths were just flying up into the air and getting eaten by these birds. And I, I had never noticed that before. Um, and that's just a small example of like, okay, if you say you're a bird watcher, at some point you're going to have to expand out from birds to, you know, trees and plants and moths and bugs. And then you'll also have to start to acknowledge seasons and micro seasons. And, and you'll have to look at a map that's larger than the area where you live. Um, and it just kind of like any, any point you pick in a bioregion is going to branch outward like that. Um, and so I think it's a really helpful model for relearning how to see and appreciate complexity and interdependent relationships. I also find it useful as a model of what I call difference without boundary. So there's different bioregions, but there's no hard line between them. And that's something that I very much appreciate as a biracial person who is similarly kind of in between two distinct um, backgrounds. And then I think like more concretely, everyone lives in a bioregion. It may, depending on where you are and kind of access you have to outdoor space, which is, you know, very, very variable, you, there, there are signs around you at any time of, of where you are. Um, I would also include in this even things like, you know, I've been getting really into geology. So like learning about like the shape of this hill that I've been walking up, like, why is there a hill here? So I would also include that. But I think just, it's something I, I often use the term like grabbing a hold of. It's something you can grab a hold of. It's you know, it's there, it's under your feet, or it's in front of you. Um, and it also exists sort of a priori, like it's not, it's not something that was engineered to, <laughs> to hold your attention. It's just there. It was there before you, it was there before us. And it's, and it has, you know, its own temporality is something I've been thinking about a lot during the, during the pandemic is like observing the small and, and large signs of the seasons changing. And I just think it's, I don't know, for me, it's like felt like a lifeline um, in times when my attention was kind of stuck in this loop or I was feeling very kind of alienated or disembodied, just simply letting my attention settle on these, you know, physical, observable and, you know, sensible in many different ways, entities, but also relationships between entities. And that's just, 
yeah, like I said, it's been a lifesaver for me. There is this line in How to Do Nothing that really struck me and I think will resonate with our listeners as well. You write, quote, if you become interested in the health of the place where you are, whether that's cultural or biological or both, I have a warning. You will see more destruction than progress, end quote. And this draws upon Aldo Leopold's articulation of a world of wounds. And I think about this in context to smaller scales of attention. And I wonder if downsizing our scales of attention could actually soften some of the blows of living in the ruins, a sort of hold us as we reintegrate into the world and reclaim our attention. Yeah, I mean, again, just during the pandemic, like, in addition to the kind of changing of the seasons, like one thing that I have been really attentive to is, again, not everyone is into bird watching, I, which I have to acknowledge, but for me, like the experience of seeing certain birds is one of, it's just joy, you know, like a few, I, I mean, that's really the only word that I can think of um, to describe it. And, and it's really strange in a way to experience that in the midst of a larger concern about the decline in birds I recently uh, wrote a, I guess it wasn't that recent, <laughs> earlier this year, um, I wrote a, a review for The Atlantic of a, a book by Jennifer Ackerman about bird behavior. And, you know, that book is a combination of like wonder at all of these new kind of inexplicable things that we're learning about what birds can do at the same time that, you know, there's such a huge decline in bird populations. And so it sounds kind of difficult to square those two, but I think that actually the daily experience of these encounters with birds, which for the time being are still in my neighborhood, is actually what sustains me enough to live in that world in which there's, you know, um, in which I'm, I am so concerned about them. And then there's a lot to be sort of frightened and angry and, and anxious about. I, I think that it can be easy to forget the importance of those small moments of joy where you sort of remember like what it is that you're fighting for in the first place. And I think there's a real risk of losing that and sort of just living in this grind of despair, which again is very lucrative for the attention economy, among other things. But yeah, I think that 
it's only more important now to, you know, not, of course, not lose sight of, of these issues um, that feel quite crushing, but, but to also experience like in these kind of small spaces within that, um, just like appreciation and love and gratitude for, for, for those, you know, for what you, what is in front of you um, and what is around you. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that is so important. It's like, we can, we can lose this entire earth while being distracted on a screen of an earth that isn't real on that screen. You know, it's, it's, I remember seeing this cartoon of this guy looking at his computer screen and there was a forest, but outside his window was a bunch of stumps. And yeah, it's, it just, (laughs) oh, it just feels so important. And in your writing, you, you often talk and in this interview, you know, you've been talking about the companionship and guidance that bird watching has provided you over the years. And I think it's always important to underscore the ways in which our attention to the more than human world really sustains us. And I also think about, you know, you know, just kind of going back to this cartoon, it's like a step further. I think we know, you know how to make reels and shopping tabs and, you know, we notice the shopping tab on Instagram. We notice uh, IG, we know how to create IGTVs, but yet we don't know the bird species around us. We don't know their song. We don't know what they look like. And therefore, we don't know if they go extinct. We don't know if they're in peril. And so I think also just about what children are learning and what they're not learning and how that disconnection really stops us from being able to stand up in defense of the earth which is actually the basis of our survival. So yeah, I don't have a direct question there, but just hearing your last response and kind of getting in that rabbit hole of the knowledge that our attention brings us and how it's not, it is for our psychological health, but it it actually is also for our very survival to notice what's around us, like in, in the actual real world. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there before I like really go down that hole. <laughs> but if there's anything you want to add, I'm interested to hear it. I mean, I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the utopian social media. It, it is still difficult for me to imagine that, but I but I think it's also true that there are uses of, um, uh, you know, uses of online connection that actually... Um, can, can help with things like this. So, you know, I mentioned iNaturalist at one point in the book, which is the app that lets you identify plants and if you're lucky animals and uh, which has been huge for me in terms of like becoming familiar with my, uh, with my bioregion, like the, the ability to not only like take a photo, but also, and then it gives you, it lets you guess. Um, so it, it, or it gives you some guesses, you choose one. And then, um, usually a person who is kind of certified to do so will, um, confirm or deny within a couple of days, depending on how popular it is where you, where you are. But um, I, I went to an iNaturalist happy hour at one point and it was like really, I met the person who had been um, confirming a lot of my iNaturalist observations. And, and then, you know, there's like, I've just noticed things like on the Golden Gate Audubon Society email list, there's this kind of like feeling of a, a community of people that's looking out for, for example, like a specific species 
you know, just kind of talking about like, oh, you know, I've noticed that, that fewer of these have showed up this year. Has, has anyone else noticed that? Kind of like coordination of like attention, right? And, and also being able to like respond, right? To there's some kind of like problem or threat. Um, so I think that that's an example of uh, the ways in which I think just, you know, technology or sort of online connection in itself, you know, it can sort of be used for, it can be used in multiple directions. It doesn't always have to be this kind of nefarious, distracting thing that's so divorced from the physical world. Like I think there are ways in which my favorite example of a piece of technology is binoculars um, because it allows me to see something that I can't see on, with my unaided eye. And so there's ways of thinking about um, technology that I think can be in support of this identification with and support of the natural world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, technology may not be an evil in and of itself. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe some people would argue with that. But um, yeah, I, I'm thinking about in your article, why birds do what they do for the Atlantic. You talk about bird watching in the cemetery near your house and how it provides this sense of erasure and the feeling of absolving oneself from the world. And lately, I've been thinking about the soft power that melding ourselves into the world provides as we dismantle human supremacy. But this example at the cemetery speaks of a sort of imagined erasure. And I'm curious to hear more about that practice as well, even if just in small temporary moments. Yeah, I, I mean, I used the word humbling earlier. And I think that um, when you you know, there's, there's a form of bird watching that I think I say this in the book, that's a little bit like Pokemon go, right? Like, it's like, I got that one. I got that one. You're kind of going down the list and it feels, it still feels very acquisitive to me. Um, like you're acquiring something and, uh, whereas like my sort of preferred form of bird watching, I mean, don't get me wrong. I get really excited when I see a new species for the first time, but, um, you know, I also have known these crows on my street for, you know, now four years uh, family of crows, um, and crows are, you know, supposedly a very common bird, although, you know, it's, they're also some of, by, by human measures of intelligence, they're, they're very intelligent and can recognize faces and all this. Um, but all of that aside, um, you know, I, I think the more time I spend with them and observing them and their behavior over the years, um, it's not like I have some, it's not like I am grasping them or I can understand them better. It, it actually increases the complexity that I see when I look at them. And at some point it sort of flips things where, you know, they are to me like the biggest reminder that I'm an animal and that when they look at me, they see an animal that, you know, I and the crows are animals. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it really, yeah, like I said, it kind of, um, flips that, that, um, relationship that I think we're really used to of seeing um, the animate world as sort of subordinate to humans and and not lacking an agency and just sort of like things in the world. Um, I think if you spend enough time, you know, anyone who has a pet probably understands this, right? Like who hasn't looked at their pet and wondered like, what are you thinking? Um, but it's like this kind of moment in which you, it's not that you're able to see the world through their eyes. It's almost it's the understanding that you you can never see the world through their eyes. That there's a completely different way of being in the world that you will never understand. And yet these two ways of being in the world are like staring at each other. And I think that's really 
it's humbling because it decenters you um, and it sort of is this it makes you just one piece of this larger puzzle if you're just another animal of course you know i say just another animal like meanwhile humans are like destroying the earth but but in that sort of moment it's just kind of like a reminder that um that you you don't actually have any kind of inherent primacy vis-a-vis this other being right yeah Oh, well, Jenny, for my final question, I want to talk about what you call manifest dismantling and the necessity of reframing progress and invention. As you conclude how to do nothing, you write, quote, 19th century views of progress, production, and innovation relied on an image of the land as a blank slate where its current inhabitants and systems were like so many weeds in what was destined to become an American lawn. But if we sincerely recognized all that was already here, both culturally and ecologically, we started to understand that anything framed as construction was actually also destruction, end quote. So can you speak to how boycotting the attention economy also means tangible and intangible commitments to place and a sort of repair in the form of unraveling? Yeah, I mean, I think that... One one example of this, um, you know, one example of the fact that dealing with the attention economy requires actions that would have to happen outside of the sphere of what we would consider the attention economy is just access to to a sense of place. So I talk a little bit in that chapter about the disparate access to outdoor space that happens. You know, for example, in Oakland, there are far fewer parks in West Oakland than uh, where I am. You know, where you think about someone who lives in the hills versus someone who lives next to the port. And then also the fact that I I mentioned that in tandem with the fact that, um, you know, many sort of uh, tech moguls have uh, prohibited use of, you know, iPhones at the dinner table, or they have some sort of um, someone who's helping them kind of curtail their use. Meanwhile, someone, you know, let's say like a single mother um, who's working really hard and just needs to kind of um, put, put something in front of um, her children is going to like, you know, give them the phone. Um, so there's these kind of differences in privilege, um, access and class that I think like, you know, have to be kind of acknowledged if you really, you know, are talking about a uh, holistic dealing way of dealing with the attention economy. Um, so that's part of the reason that I, that I end the book by talking about this park that I feel like really encapsulates all of these things. Um, it's uh, middle Harbor shoreline park. And I think it's just such an amazing example because it is an example of what I would call manifest dismantling and that it used to be a naval supply depot. Um, and then it's um, basically the port turned it into a park and in doing so it had to, it had been dredged. So they had to recreate uh, a kind of beach that would have been there. Um, and so uh, that's work, right? Like putting a the work of returning something to how it used to be or just taking something out, like dismantling something. And then all of these shorebirds showed up. Um, It's still actually a really great place for bird watching, but it also has a tower that's um, named after Chappelle Hayes, who was someone who was very instrumental in bringing awareness to Oakland of environmental racism, uh, especially with the port being right next to West Oakland. Um, So there's that sort of monument as well. It's a kind of observation tower so you can walk up there and just kind of see the whole park. Um, and then, you know, just on the, in a more basic sense, it's a park that's in West Oakland. So 
it's a, and it's a space for reflection. It's a space for community with others, a community with um, the birds who are visiting. And like, to me, like when I think of what my definition of productive is, like, that's what it is, is that park. It's like something that, you know, was restored and a lot of work went into that restoration. And then it's also something that's acknowledging, you know, it's acknowledging harm that's been done. Um, and so, you know, it's like, I, I don't really want to use the language of like, I try not to use the language of forward and backward, but I think if you subscribe to a, the kind of manifest destiny version of like linear progressive history, it will look like turning back. It will look like turning around and going backwards. But I think that that it only looks that way from that point of view, from the point of view of like health and flourishing and acknowledgement and justice. Like it's just, it's just, um, improvement <laughs> um i don't really know what else to call it um and it and it is productive it's productive of of meaning and uh and you know acknowledgement of of things that should have been acknowledged so yeah for me that's that's kind of the best example and i, I was really heartened to see yesterday that the the there are some dams um in on the Klamath that are like maybe uh step closer to being dismantled i i have the example of the dam that's dismantled in the Carmel Valley in my book. But I think, you know, that's like a really literal example is like just literally like taking down a structure in order to restore um, a habitat for fish and and other beings. So like I just think examples abound of like just removing like something that just needs to be removed. Um, to me, that's like a, a step, quote unquote, forward. Absolutely. I'm so excited about the Klamath Dam news this week. And and praying that it follows through with the mission of taking down those dams. I think, I think there's something like seventy thousand dams across the United States, and we got to take them down. Especially when we still have access to fossil fuels, we got to take them down. So yeah, that's such a wonderful note to end on. Thank you, Jenny, for your time. This has been such an important conversation that I feel like everybody listening will feel connected to in one way or the other. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today is by Harrison Foster, Bosques Fragmentados, Samara Gisando, and Kritzkum. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger. <laughs>